0: Investigators, oftentimes, once they just sort of have a little bit of time to actually prioritize it and self-reflect and think about it, so you're better at it than you think. So I would just encourage you to be confident that you can do it, and also that it's okay that you're kind of feeling your way through some of it. You don't have to expect perfection from yourself. Other people don't. Um, you're allowed to be human. So if you feel a little awkward being like, hey, guys, I'm going to start a new tradition. We're going to have lunch every the last Friday of every month. Let's get together. And you're like, oh, not my thing um it's okay to feel a little awkward and vulnerable i think that's thrown into the paper somewhere about yeah towards the end it might feel awkward at first but that's okay
1: welcome to helium podcast where we teach early career researchers how to land master and lead in their faculty positions that was allison ante's assistant professor at the school of medicine of washington university in st louis Today, Allison joined us to talk about how to create high-quality human interactions in your research group. A couple of things she covers in the episode is why people need to feel comfortable with telling you that they made a mistake, how to step back and think about how you are mentally treating yourself first so you can treat others better. She also has some great insight on running team meetings, group meetings, great insight also on how to onboard people into your research group or team. And that starts really early, it starts in the interview process. And she talks about how to handle that during this episode. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. Episode 24 with Allison Antes.
2: Today, we're welcoming to the podcast, Allison Antes, an organizational psychologist who specializes in the scientific workplace. I work in the field of team science, and interdisciplinary integration, um, which some people might know who listen. And that draws on a good deal of organizational psychology, examining, you know, kind of how we can more effectively solve complex interlinked problems. So Allison's field is one that I'm kind of a groupie of, and just the human aspect of this is enormous um, and so relevant to all research. So I'm super excited for this conversation.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
2: So... Allison, Matt and I really enjoyed your article in Nature from last November called The Law: The First Law of Leadership, Be Human First, Scientist Second. So um, we'll link to it in the show notes, of course, and, and there's so many parts I'd love to unpack, so maybe we'll do that here. But um, in it, I, really, I just felt like you very succinctly framed the challenge and explained why some of it makes sense that these challenges exist. But then you also pivoted pretty quickly to offer some very pragmatic advice about how people can manage their groups and center their human side and value relationships. So I thought, why don't we just start generally by asking you to explain what motivated you to make this case that all research leaders leaders, uh, need to add relationship building to their to-do list?
0: Okay. So great question. What led me to make this case? Well, several different things had led to me really seeing this as important, but let me try to unpack that. So One of them is actually my work looking at failures in research integrity and um, in research labs, and oftentimes there was no intention for rules to be broken or um, problematic findings to be published that later turned out like there was just poor data management, and now there's claims of something fraudulent going on. Um, It was more about failures in management and leadership and communication among the group, that led to what looked like, wow, you're engaging in research wrongdoing. And so I work with investigators who come to Washington University for a program where we help sort of unpack what happened to lead them to where they were. And so many of the cases involved failures of interaction and communication in the lab. And as soon as they realize that that's what happened, they immediately realize wow, I haven't been attending to the importance of, like, building and maintaining relationships and having this really open lines of communication in my group, and I really need to figure that out now. And it's like, okay, you've been doing this for years and years and years, and you're just now having this insight? Wow. So that's sort of one form. And then the other is I work with young investigators who are early in their career. They're either graduate students or postdocs or early career junior faculty and seeing how the impact of those failures in communication and leadership in their groups really affect them at a personal and professional level. So feeling like they're not getting the um, responsiveness and the attention and the interactivity that they would expect to get in the scientific workplace and finding like that's a really big problem for them in advancing in their careers. So seeing it from both those perspectives. And oftentimes from their vantage point, it's not so much about Concerns about research integrity. Although sometimes they will highlight, "Wow, I get really concerned that we're not adequately crossing our Ts and dotting our I's, and that could lead to problems down the road." But more, it's just about their like quality of life in the research lab and in the the group. Um, So that was another angle. And then I am a researcher myself, so I've worked in lots of labs, lots of labs, and lots of research teams. And there's a wide variation in the quality of the exchange and the interaction that goes along. Goes on, and so I've person, you know, personally experienced it. And then as an organizational psychologist, I know that human interactions in the workplace matter. So if you want innovative, high quality work, you want productivity, you want good problem solving, you want to learn from failures, you gotta have high quality human interactions. It's not just about what's between your ears, your brain, you know, there's also other parts of people. And scientists are taught about the intellectual side and sometimes to the exclusion of the human side. And so I was lucky enough to have been invited to kind of share this view that's informed by all these different angles, work with those investigators who've had missteps, work with junior investigators who are just starting out, my own work as a a researcher and um, leading teams and working in teams, and then just knowing as an organizational psychologist, wow, scientists really don't appreciate how important these dynamics are. So that was a long answer, but I kind of just explained to you the last, like, 10 to 15 years of my life <laughs> between all the things I've been doing. So I tried to summarize there for you what really informed what I've been up to lately.
3: I think that, I think it's was really exciting for me because on the podcast, we've, we've kind of touched on some of these subjects and depending on the episode, and, but ever since our, we recorded episode two, where we were talking to our friend, Jose Serrato about building a, a good group vision and culture, I always kind of wanted to get back to the practical side of, you know, just thinking about someone, let's say, transitioning from a postdoc into a faculty position, what are the, you know, some of the practical steps that they can follow to try to get to this level where they have a really strong group culture? And when I ran across your article, I was like, Eureka, this is perfect. We have to have Allison on the podcast. Um, and so I wonder if we could just like walk through some of these approaches and maybe you could color, color in between the lines a little bit more. And, and I know that task one is to put recurring one-on-one meetings with members of your group on your calendar. And I know most people intend on doing this, but sometimes they, they let this slip. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about uh, what you've learned in terms of that
0: yeah okay, so great question. So I definitely agree with you that um, most people appreciate that it's important. It's important to have some exchange, have a inter- relationships and build a good group culture. But then it goes down to how do you do that? What does that look like in practice? So the idea between having um, recurring meetings is with individuals in your group is you can't build a relationship if you're not interacting with people. Just can't, just literally cannot happen because you have to have those exchanges. So I would say a really, really important piece there is to, you have to prioritize those interactions. And so to make it concrete and make sure that it's there and it's happening, you, got, you put it on that calendar and you schedule it and you make it a priority. And prioritizing, I think, is a challenge because we're, we have so many pressures coming at us as researchers to do so many things. And we, it's hard to see exchanges with other people as a good use of time sometimes because it doesn't feel like you're being quote unquote productive. So to prioritize it, my recommendation is to see it as an investment. Like that 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour, whatever it is, is an investment in it's an investment in the relationship, but more importantly, in science because you're going to increase productivity. You might increase the pers- retention of the person in your group, and going to this idea that you want to build a group with a good culture. You're going to increase your reputation as a researcher that has a good place to work, so you're going to attract better people. So it's like that short-term, long-term tension of like, man, I really need to answer some emails and write another page on my paper versus, man, I really need to sit down with a trainee or a student or a staff member and talk about what they're doing and get into their, you know, provide guidance for them. That has a longer-term it's a longer-term impact. It has an, it's an investment that you don't see as immediately, and it's not as concrete. And I think oftentimes researchers are going to go to the concrete. Also, it's not necessarily what feels as natural. So it might feel more natural to be, like, behind your computer with your door shut writing an article versus, like, you know, walking down the hall or, I don't know, depending on how far you are from your team, opening your door and walking out um, and just kind of saying, how's it going today?
2: I think that's uh, so many good points there. Just you know the the tendency toward doing the thing that's on fire, and there's always going to be so many things on fire. Yeah, but it's kind of a very it can be a very slow burn if those investments aren't being made. And I think it's something that people probably, as you kind of said when you were summarizing the two types of interactions that you have, that people, when they are in um, kind of the more advanced part of their career, they might sort of feel like that part is established and they aren't attending to it as often because they have their sea legs, basically. So, I mean, I, I like the idea that you're saying, put it on your calendar, think of it as an investment, protect that time, and then just kind of do it religiously because you need to water the garden type of thing. Okay, so I'm going to stay on task because it's, uh, Matt is always like, okay, we've got these six things and and there's so many different interesting directions we could take it. But my uh, my next thing to ask you to unpack is the second task on your list of pragmatic advice, which is to invite people to share both complaints and highlights. I think this is huge in my view to making space for people to feel heard and safe to offer critiques and not only have the positive kind of emotional spectrum um especially in light of the power dynamics so could you talk to that
0: yep yeah, absolutely so inviting people to provide per- feedback and their perspectives there's a lot of pieces to that so one is just from a human side in terms of building relationships is there's really no better way to make people feel valued than, to, than that they feel heard that they have a voice so um also, if you're trying to build your relationships and build yourself as you know an outstanding leader of, of scientists, you, a really good way to understand how you're doing and progressing is to get some reflection back and some feedback back and to hear how the people who are working with you feel about working there. And then also from a science side, you're cultivating an environment where people are open and transparent. And that's really important because my work has really, really highlighted the importance that people feel comfortable telling you about problems, challenges, and especially about mistakes. And also thinking about the types of people that do the work we do. These are people who have gotten A's, lots and lots of A's throughout their life. They're not really used to messing up. And they're not necessarily used to highlighting that they messed up. But if you want rigorous, high quality research, you need people in your group who are comfortable saying, oh, put on the brakes, something's wrong, or oh, I made a mistake, or there's a problem. So it's cultivating that in culture where people feel comfortable airing concerns, and that could be about the science, and it must be about the science, but it also might be about the workplace environment or that there's sort of some tensions and you try to, you know, maybe the students say there's some, t- some tension between myself and this other individual. We tried to, I tried to approach them and um, address it. I don't know if it's working. Could you provide some guidance? So there's both that, there's the interpersonal side, um, like you started with earlier, you said, you know, addressing conflict. And then there's the the science side. And I've talked to a lot of researchers who actually say, I explicitly tell people in my group, like science is hard. <laughs> Things go wrong. It's a, you know, we're going into the unknown. This is hard stuff. I expect that you work really hard and I have high standards, but I also know you're human and I'm human too. So like, I need to know about mistakes. I need to know about problems. I need to know if you think something's going wrong. Like I just need, we need to talk. We have to communicate. We have to have openness. And so you're fostering good research that way. And then you're also fostering an environment where people feel respected and they feel trustful and they feel open.
3: Yeah. It makes me think of, uh, the. I think, I'm, I might be misplacing this in the book, a book that I read, but it makes me think of uh, Margaret Heffernan, who wrote this book and was talking about. I don't, I don't know what the business was, but the the concept was that they had a big book of failures that was just in the middle of the room, and then whenever somebody, even the boss, made a mistake, they would just log it into the book, and it was both to avoid future mistakes of the same nature but also just to let everybody know that even the boss was making mistakes. So I thought that was a genius idea. Yep.
0: That's exactly right. I've I did I have spoken to some investigators who say I my I try to highlight like in a lab meeting if we're getting together. I try to highlight listen to what I did or listen to this review I just got. Like they ripped this up so yeah. that people in the group realize like that's what it's about. Like that's part of the process and that even the investigator that they might, you know, look up to and think wow, I'd like to be like them someday, like they get, they get criticisms and they have failures too. And that's just a part of it. So absolutely like modeling, like a a role modeling, you know, leading by example is what you described.
2: Yeah. And I think that that's one of the beautiful opportunities of the apprenticeship model that academia is really, um, kind of adopts is that, you know, you're apprenticing with someone so that you, you need to be able to look behind the curtain and see how it all works and if you're just seeing the show and not the backstage you're not going to be able to put on the show later you know
0: and I think an important part of this that is sort of implicit in what we're talking about but hasn't been directly said is the importance of the investigator realizing or the lead the, you know the research team leader that they're human too you have to have that amount of you know insight and humility before you can start a sort to extend that to other people and realize they are too. You know, you have your different strengths, different limitations. And um, also I found an interesting kind of phenomenon where, and it definitely would be reinforced by literature in the field. Like it's hard to treat others kindly and like build respect and trust. If you're beating yourself up and not realizing that you're a human and you have limitations and you need to have your own emotional and mental reserves intact (laughs) to interact well with others. So that's sort of another piece that maybe didn't come through too much in my nature piece of like, because it's so much directed at how would you interact with others, but you have to think about how you're interacting with yourself, if that kind of makes sense. Like treat yourself with some humanity and like occasionally maybe, you know, pat yourself on the back, (laughs) take a break. Um, I've that's, you know, I've spoken to investigators who actually kind of said it. Like, you need to get some sleep, or you're not going to be good at building relationships with other people, and also you may not be setting the best example. Like, certainly, there's times yet where you might not be sleeping, but it's not necessarily sustainable.
3: <laughs>
1: if you're listening and you're out there looking for a faculty position, we made an email course, a six-week email course that where you get one email per week for six weeks on how to land your faculty position without feeling stressed, overwhelmed, or isolated. We know that this process can be quite difficult, and so what we've done is made a free resource where you can sign up for this at course and we will drip out these emails to you once a week so that it's not too overwhelming and give you tasks each week for how you can set yourself best up for landing a faculty position. Again, that course is found at www.teamhelium.co slash F-P-P-C-O-U-R-S-E. We hope to see you in there and enjoy the rest of the episode.
3: I think actually that leads in pretty pretty nicely to the, the next piece that we were going to talk about, which is like, so task three which is talking about walking the shop floor but you know you 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 frame this in a way that's important that we'll get to but the another important point is that you know maybe you do as an early career research, researcher or just a researcher you need to step away from the computer every once in a while have some human interaction just talk to people and and re I'm going to make up a word here, but like rehumanify or something, you know, like, you know, like I'm not just interacting with technology all day. And I just made me think, oh yeah, that's another good benefit of doing uh, the task three that you suggest, which is walking the shop floor. And I, I wonder if, so I was going to ask you a question about this. So I think people kind of get the concept of like walking around their labs, running into people and But do you have an example of, in your experience, like either your experience working in a lab or someone else that you've worked with where this kind of behavior has resulted in kind of unexpected breakthroughs or things that people just didn't make connections on before and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is so clear?
0: Um, That's interesting. I definitely think that those unstructured moments for interaction allow conversation and breakthroughs to happen. I think what actually when those happen even more is sometimes when you've stepped away from the shop, so to speak, and you've gone like to have lunch or you've gone to have coffee. Um, But what I think the walk, the shop for us is especially good for is like reducing waste and time spent on tasks when just asking me, asking me as the investigator, a quick question can help redirect or solidify for like my research assistants, Like I'm working on this task you brought, you know, you tasked me with yesterday, da da da, da and have this insight, where, and I have this question. And sometimes it's like I have a question about a way to do it better than even what you told me to do it, and I'm like, yes, that way, do it that way, great idea. So it's like that task execution where I've definitely experienced, like, someone on my team sitting there, you know, working on it, and I have a better way of doing it than I thought, or a new idea. And, I'm, and they probably would have just kept going down the path that I had proposed if they hadn't, like, seen me walk by. And they see me walk by or they see me stop by, say how it's going. They're like, well, actually, now that you're here, I was just thinking, how about I try it this way? And then you get those opportunities to either have a better way of doing it or if they're like, I don't know, I started off on this task and now I'm feeling like, am I doing this right? Whereas it, it is harder for them, even if they know, you know, knock on my door or my door's cracked or my door's open, whatever model you follow, even if they know that it's still harder for them to, it's easier for them, I should say. To just sort of grab you as you've stopped by or just taken that moment to be a human for a sec.
2: So task four that you mentioned in your article, Alice, was um, modeling desired behavior in team meetings.
0: Do you want to talk about what that looks like? So this kind of goes back to what I said before about just the importance of if you want to create a culture of openness, transparency, res- you know, mutual respect, modeling those behaviors. And also that idea of, like, modeling the it's okay to be human by saying, oh, look at this failure I just had. I just got a horrible score in a grant review, and they ripped it apart. Look at these comments. But then also modeling the, um, you know, supportive and encouraging behavior, telling people nice job, your contribution is really important, just being collegial and And, you know, thoughtful as you go about navigating the team meeting, which is about, of course, the work and how, you know, how things are progressing and how data is looking and, you know, where's the next paper, you know, where's that, how far is that along, whatever it might be. But um, just being mindful that you're setting the tone in in that environment. And oftentimes, you know, those team meetings for many um, researchers, whether you're doing lab science or clinical research or whatever type of scientific discipline you're in. Those opportunity, those team meetings are like the only time that everybody's sitting in the same place and coming together. So that's sort of like your moment as like the CEO of the research team to be the, you know, to model the kinds of interactions and that, and even maybe to explicitly communicate some of your priorities and expectations out loud. Sometimes like we believe we're, we we care about things, but we don't say it out loud and what better way to communicate what you care about than to say it out loud? And that actually makes me think of another piece of advice that I don't think is in the nature piece. But um, if you want to, uh, because I know, Matt, you're really interested in, like, how do you help this early career investigator, like, create that kind of culture? Start from the day you're bringing somebody into the lab or thinking about bringing them into the lab or hiring them, whatever kind of model you use, Um whether you're, you know, got, volu- you know, graduate students coming in or you actually hire staff, whatever it is, like an interview environment, like it should be noted. Like this is a, you know, my research group, we're really highly collaborative. We get along well. We're really productive. We, you know, whatever it is, whatever those qualities of a research group are that you care about, say it from the beginning and start setting that tone from the, from the interview. And then that bleeds over into their, their mental kind of understanding of, hey, this is the group I'm coming into. <laughs> I actually spoke to an investigator who told me, I know this sounds silly, but I actually asked people in the interview, are you nice and effective? Like, I can tell you're effective by looking at your Vita, but are you nice? Because I want people here who are nice and effective. And he's, she's like, usually they look at me like, are you kidding? Is that a trick question? So... <laughs> I was going to say another piece of advice. So like if you start at the interview phase and like on the onboarding, so there's sort of this period, this is awkward, weird period when you're bringing people into your group of like, there's people who've been there. And so they kind of know how things work and people who don't and being really sensitive and attuned to the idea that like outsiders coming in, newcomers, they don't know how things operate and giving them a little bit more attention and time for building that connection and getting an, an understanding of wrapping their head around how things work. That's another important piece of, like, fostering that culture. So making sure they don't feel like they're, like, completely jumping into the deep end and have no idea how things go, like, trying to kind of bring them on board. I think there was actually a paper in Nature, like, a comment lately, maybe in the last year, about kind of having, like, a lab kind of manual or kind of like a policy book of, like, welcome to our group and, like, just – Being mindful of that, like, I'm going into this group and I don't know what's going on and I don't know the acronyms they use or the terminology or how they, to start there with the relationship building process and realize that those early interactions and that early exposure into the group is really important and to try to kind of orchestrate it and think about it, like, what will that look like? And could I put, like, um, a good example of it, which is so easy and cost-free, other than a sheet of paper is whenever we have someone new come into our lab, we always have a welcome sign up on their, either on their door or on, in their cubicle, whatever they work in. So that when they come to their seat the first day, there's like a welcome, Allison, sign. And it sounds silly, but people keep them up. Like people have been here four or five years. They still have their sign up.
3: It, it makes me think of this book that I haven't read, but I read some some snippets from it. It's called, I think it's called Moment. And it's from these uh, authors, Dan and Chip Heath. And they talk about the most important things that people remember from like events and other things like that. And oftentimes they remember the beginning and the end. And those are the things that, that you know, so if you watch a movie, you'll remember more about the movie probably from the start of the movie and from the end of the movie than you will from any anything in the middle. And so this is the same concept, which is like, how do you create that moment, even if it's just a piece of paper, Right it's a moment that someone's going to never forget and be like, I was welcome here.
2: Yeah. You're, you're sending out those belonging cues that that matters to us, but how you feel is something that is part of this equation, which, which kind of keeps them in the human zone. Like you talk about.
3: So, and th- this actually sets up really nicely. Uh, you know, I think we've almost already covered this topic, but talking about task number five, which is setting up social occasion for people to spend time together in a in a more you know out of the lab, non professional or professional but like non you know, group meeting kind of way. Um, and so I, I know one question I think our audience members would have is that there's different styles, right? So some people, some people like to throw parties at their house. Some people like to have coffees. And so I wonder if we could explore a little bit more what, you know, you've seen work for people depending on what their styles are, whether they're introverted, extroverted. Yep.
0: So that absolutely was going to be my first comment was you, needed, you should do something that feels comfortable to you. And simple gestures, um, kind of going back to the idea of a simple sign on your door or on your cubicle or on your seat or whatever it is, can matter. So, you know, um, so what feels comfortable and what's feasible? So I definitely have spoken to investigators who absolutely, like, if there's a graduation, some if a student in their lab graduates, there's a cake and there's a, you know, celebration or there's a dinner at their house. And I have other investigators who are like, that's just not feasible for me. My group's too big for example, and people are graduating all the time, or I'm just, you know, I have such a small family, it just wouldn't be feasible when you take that kind of time. Like my kids would be jumping on, you know, off the walls. Well, I'm trying to have, that just wouldn't work. So I have other people who say, you know, just on rare occasion, even once in a year or once every six months, like I order some pizzas into the lab and I'm like, hey guys, let's take that hour that you're usually working and like, let's go eat some pizza. Or um, the lab that I work work in. We actually were trying to figure out how to have more social occasions because our group is growing so much uh, that our meetings, our team meetings are more fractured. So we have more individual project meetings, but not a whole, like everybody's together all the time. And so what we decided to do was on the last Monday of every month from and we actually schedule, we actually quote unquote schedule it literally 12 to 1230. So that doesn't feel too scary because everybody's so busy, but usually it ends up going more. But where we all stop and say, okay, if you're available, we're going to eat lunch together. But it's literally like the lunch you would have brought anyway. So that takes no planning. It's just saying, hey, let's put it on the calendar. Let's get together. And that's just the last Monday of every month. And that's, that seems doable. It seems feasible. And it mu- hopefully would feel... Even if somebody isn't super extroverted and they don't, they're not the kind of person who's going to like order a cake and throw a party, they can challenge themselves to say, I wouldn't normally say, let's grab some pizza or a coffee or have a lunch together. But like, I would encourage, you know, push yourself to just try it a little bit and it'll become more comfortable, hopefully, I think. Um, <laughs> and, and frequency, like it doesn't have to be that frequent i actually, there's an investigator, a couple buildings over for me, wildly successful, like amazing papers and, you know, top, top journals. And he said, every Friday we have wine and I bake bread and my, my bread machine. And I'm like, are you serious? He's like, no, literally that's what we do. Cause we work so hard all week. So that's like his thing. Cause the reason I know this is I had a meeting with him on a Friday and I walk into his office and I hear the like sound of the bread machine, like, making the weird bread machine sound. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, Oh no, no, that's just the bread machine. I'm making bread later. So I actually feel like to the extent to the extent you can, like, make it weird and quirky. Like make it something that's cool to you and other people can kind of appreciate that you're you have a neat thing that you do. And again, it doesn't have to be weekly, it doesn't even have to be monthly just that time to just interact as people, sort of what it was your word earlier, like rehumification or whatever. Yeah, whatever that made up word was. Like this time to rehumanize yourself. Yeah, rehumanize, that's a better word. And again, it goes back to that idea of like an investment. So it's hard to think about those times as a productive time. But if you think about it, like if you're talking about 30 minutes or 45 minutes once a month or an hour every six months, Or a bigger, more expended period of time once a year, that's very likely to be an investment worth making. Yeah. And, you know,
2: we were talking before we started recording about how all of, all three of us on, um, in this, conversation have young families. And I don't know about you all, but I've had the realization over and over, like, oh, I'm in charge here. Like I make up the traditions for us. Like we, my husband and I, you know, like it's to us what happens um, on Easter morning or whatever. And I feel like it's the same way. It can look anything like what you want but it's it's sort of an intentional realization continual realization that you're setting the tone like you said and that it can look like it looks like for you if it's bread and wine on Fridays that sounds that sounds ideal for me
0: <laughs> 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 you're on,
2: you're like I'm on board yeah, yeah I mean, um or if it's you know I love the lunch thing because something about doing a, a very mundane um, activity together actually kind of really brings you all to the same level. It's almost better than if the tradition was something fancy. Right. Um, that's all those are great ideas.
3: Yeah. It made me think it's like, it's funny that you brought up bread and wine because I was thinking of, I was, I was, I'm very grateful that I had some time. I was a postdoc in France and every day they're very respectful of their eating times. And every day the whole lab would go over and eat at the canteen together. Just that was just what was done, right? And so it was like built into the system that they had this social time that wasn't even questioned, right? And in in the U.S. we tend to just be like, "Well, oh, I can drink my Starbucks and eat my you know, sandwich while I'm running yeah. down the street." Yep. Uh, and so we've lost we've lost some of that. We got to get it back. And if it's a bread machine and and uncork wine in your office, then you know I'll take it. <laughs> So we will get back to task six, but this is, I think, just leading so perfectly into this question because you talk about you kind of close the article with this idea that, I think it's closing the article, the the idea that you often as an as a new early career researcher investigator that with with your own lab you're establishing yourself, you're adopting your mentor's habits. Um, and, or you say, as you say, inheriting them. So I think this, what you're talking about is a, a leading right into that, that topic. And so I don't know, you know, what, what other advice you would have for someone in, in terms of trying to like rethink and, you know, like, like Christine said, right. I, actually, I'm in charge. I create the traditions here, um, getting into that mindset and really, uh, owning it.
0: Yep. Um, so it definitely takes intentional reflection. It takes a bit of intentionality early on. Um, I think I hope that many investigators actually see that as an exciting opportunity. It definitely is a challenge. But you can ask yourself, like, what things about my mentor do I wanna inherit and adopt? Like what kinds of things made me feel valued and appreciated and made me feel, you know, creative and productive? And then if there were things that you were like, well, I think I'm going to try to avoid that behavior, um, I definitely speak to investigators who absolutely intentionally are adopting things that they saw because they say, man, I was so lucky to work in this vibrant, rich environment with this fantastic um, investigator. And I have others who are like, I am very intentionally avoiding adopting and creating, uh, uh, you know, uh, engaging in certain practices because of what I've seen. So it is like a, it's like a a self-reflection, mental, internal dialogue moment. I mean, maybe even you write it out. I don't know. But you can't know what kind of culture you want to create and what behaviors you want to engage in to create that kind of culture until you've sat down and asked yourself, like, what are the qualities of an environment that I want to have? What is it? If at the end of the day, I'm successful at doing this, like I buy the idea, absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely on board that I need to have and I want to have a healthy, vibrant culture in my group, then you have to sit down. Well, what would that look like? What are the qualities that you want it to reflect? And then what are the behaviors on your side that will build that up? And it is, it is you definitely, I mean, to be fair, you have an easier go of it if you came from a group where you saw it done the way you want to do it. That's an easier go of it investigators, oftentimes, once they just sort of have a little bit of time to actually prioritize it and self-reflect and think about it, you're better at it than you think. So I would just encourage you to be confident that you can do it. And also that it's okay that you're kind of feeling your way through some of it. You don't have to expect perfection from yourself. Other people don't. Um, You're allowed to be human. So if you feel a little awkward being like, hey, guys, I'm going to start a new tradition. We're going to have lunch every the last Friday of every month. Let's get together. And you're like, oh, this is not my thing. Um, it's okay to feel a little awkward and vulnerable. I think that's thrown into the paper somewhere about yeah, towards the end. It might feel awkward at first, but that's okay. Yeah,
2: I mean, we're researchers. There's there's plenty of awkward moments to go around. (laughs) It doesn't (laughs) we don't have to um embrace it. (laughs) Yeah, we have a a little bit of inoculation, right? Um, well so I Really like what you're talking about there too. And I, I also have kind of a follow on question related to this is sort of spanning the two groups that you work with. So I guess my question is what you would say about how approaches might change over the course of a person's career because how people might start out with an approach for creating collegiality and, and human connection and they know their values and, and they just have a way to do it. But then the reality is, is that, you know, you see professors advance in their career and they might have time constraints more comfort with their approaches and then the age gap just realistically between the person and their students is growing so there's generational things and just the power dynamic is more potentially tilted when maybe the investigator doesn't feel that way because they're just the same old you know person that they were and and they feel that they're still equal so um do you have advice for adjusting and um and how that kind of looks as people go along their career
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. So definitely one thing that will change your approach to sort of cultivating your group's dynamic is that if it just gets really larger, and um, oftentimes what I've seen, and this makes great sense, is you sort of start to adopt a a, a, a structure where everything doesn't necessarily flow, flow through you and from you. You have like more senior you know, graduate students, or you have postdocs, or you have more senior, whatever more senior means for your type of lab setup, those people are sort of helping to reinforce and engage with the people that are more of the newcomers and the people coming in. And they understand the culture because they've been there longer. And then you still want to have some presence and be, you know, the senior, amazing, successful PI. You still want to have presence and be available, but those other Group leaders, You're sort of, the, I'm sure you're familiar as a team scientist, like the idea of like shared or distributed leadership. So you're sort of over time in your career, as your career gets larger, as you're traveling more, as you're stretched in more ways, thinking intentionally about what's the structure of your group and how are you distributing leadership so that, you know, more senior people can kind of help to um, acclimate the newcomers and that they will understand sort of how things operate. Does that address your question? Yeah, I think that's
2: really practical. And, you know, you don't have infinite resources. So what you're able to do and what makes sense to do might change. Um, And and those are some good ideas. Kind of maybe it's it's sort of like your company growing and you need a layer of middle management. And so then there's sort of, um, you know, you have to. Not only know the culture that we were talking about, all these practices and behaviors you want to model, and you brought up how it's good to have a manual, but, um, you know, maybe indoctrinate and kind of mutually agree upon a culture that this upper leadership of your group can help keep alive. That's That's good advice.
3: You know, and I I think, and so far we've been very, I guess, internally, and also in your article, there was very much an internal focus on like the group you're establishing or the group you're running, but the last piece of advice or the last task that you have um, listed is to actually advocate for this type of behavior outside of your immediate research group or research team and kind of share best best practices with people and, and things that have been successful and actually, we're kind of doing that now on the podcast, right? So any other advice for people? Like maybe, maybe a junior, I'm thinking maybe in, in terms of a junior person, as someone who's an early career researcher trying to do these kinds of things and also explaining to their maybe senior colleagues uh, their motivations for, for why they're doing what they're doing. Maybe you have some experience with that or you've gotten some feedback that you could talk about.
0: Yeah, that's a great, a great question. So one piece of advice is at, cause you asked, you know, what, do you have any other advice for early career um, researchers and like trying to navigate this and do this one is draw on your, your community. And that might be peers. So you might have peers and other early career researchers around you who are also totally in the same boat as you. And they're thinking, man, I do want to, I, I believe I want to create a great, a great culture. That's really important. So, peer-to-peer mentoring, sort of, or peer-to-peer coaching, if you will, of what works and what doesn't work can be really, really helpful. Another thing is, even though we don't often talk about these dynamics and how these are important to successful research, there probably are many senior investigators around you that have seen lots and lots of scenarios. And so, they have the best case library in their brain that you could ever ask for. So, asking them For advice about how to navigate if there are, you know, maybe conflicts or issues that you're not sure how to navigate. And I think asking them for advice, people that you identified as like, you know, great, great role models, I think is a great four way into explaining to them that you really think this is important and you value it. So that then it can become more of a culture more broadly, maybe in your department or at your university of talking about these other pieces of successful research that often are not as um readily you know communicated and i was getting ready to say that's the other thing cuz you were asking me about communicating to senior people i mean i i think it's fair game to communicate And a i mean i don't know how often you're getting together with your division chief or your department chair to talk about probably at least once a year your annual review but there's more and more conversation about, man, should some of this stuff be talked about there? Should it even be measured? Should it be talked about? And I think it's fair game to maybe it's not the bulk of the conversation. Maybe the bulk of the conversation is the typical, like, how's your grant writing and your publications, but maybe talk about, like, man, like, I, you know, this year I brought three new graduate students in. I've got these other people. Like, things are really going great. And emphasizing, like, the role that they play in fostering your effective research and 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 communicating that you value that as a part as a professional
3: yeah and i think it's it goes back to what you said at the at the front end which is you're communicating that this is a long-term investment that you're making and this this is this will this will play itself out in in research productivity for many years to come it's not you know necessarily present in the current record right but it's you're you're putting you're putting stakes in the ground for future um future successes basically
2: yeah you're really building an academic family tree kind of and and they have their own personalities just like families do um you know not just the individuals but the flavor of the combination of everybody together so I just think it's so um, great to hear you put intentionality and time around kind of um, just claiming the place at the table for this being an important set of skills and not so much thought of as, you know, the soft skills or oftentimes, you know, it can be thought of as the emotional labor that the there's a whole gender angle of that as well, but just saying to do research well and responsibly, it's really important to be human and to value the humans that you're, you're working with.
0: Yeah. I, it's really interesting because I definitely having worked with different researchers in different um, phases of their career, I definitely get the feeling that, you know, mid (laughs) career, research across all those career stages most will will say this is important or they'll realize it's important once something happened that made them realize it was important. But the mid-career and the junior researchers of that especially are really starting to recognize like that this is important. So I am hopeful that it will become more of a natural part of the conversation. Um, But I definitely think the more that people who think it's important and are making an intentional um, commitment to it, the more that they talk about it, and bring it into the conversation the better you know if you're talking about culture change we're talking like broader across you know disciplines and science i think it's a perfect time for it because there's such a heavy emphasis right now on like transparency and openness in culture or in science and what we're usually talking about is like the broader scientific community but transparency and openness and all that that starts you know at the individual level of a lab and then it bleeds out more broadly um And people are just having, you know, intense conversations, especially where I am in biomedical um, side of things about rigor and reproducibility. And so I feel like the time is ripe to bring in this other piece of, you know, it is about rigorous methods and approaches, but it's also about the human element of how do we together execute rigorous methods and approaches and how are we, you know, how do we talk about data and talk about mistakes and have a culture within our own group where we feel open and transparent.
3: Yeah, I think, I think you've given our listener listeners uh, a good challenge there, right? To not only take this take this content in and listen to it, but also be out there and saying this is more about changing the culture across science, and 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 kind of bearing this flag with them and and, and saying that we can make this better. And we can we can improve things across the board, and so I I think that's a great way to end the, the show. And I, I want to thank you, Allison, for for coming on and talking with us for so long on this episode. We we really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Oh well, thanks for inviting me. I was happy to. I hope I said something here or there that was of um, you know um, immediate practical value. As we started off talking about the need for actionable practical advice, like how do I do it? Like I believe it's important, but how do I do it? So. If I gave just one piece of advice to just one person, I was worth it. But I'm hoping my, (laughs) the span is broader than that.
2: Oh, I know it is. And, you know, not only the information conveyed, but uh, talking about it is, is modeling its importance. So it's, it's demonstrating and teaching at the same time. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to episode 24 of Helium Podcasts. Of course, as usual, we will put all the links and resources that were mentioned in this episode at the show notes at teamhelium.co slash episode 24. The key takeaway for me from our talk today with Allison was thinking about how you are treating yourself because it reflects in how you treat others. And in fact, It's great because in June, we have an entire uh, monthly theme on rejuvenation, and we are recording those episodes now, and we're looking forward to sharing those with you, and if you have any ideas on episodes on rejuvenation, we'd love to hear from you on social media, or let us know what you thought about this episode or some of our other episodes on Twitter at Helium Podcast, or on Instagram at Helium Pod. We'd love to see you there on social media and hear from you and your opinion. The music for today's episode was provided by Michael Blake, who can be found at mblakemusic.com. The edits for today's episode were done by Zach Hendren. The episode was recorded by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and myself. Until next time, may your research change the world for the better.